Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stupski, Alex Welsh, and Brad King. On episode 51, we are proud to welcome back Eric Cherney and Carson Lev as we continue our discussion on creative and design management. Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Carson. And I'm Eric. And hey, we got the gang back together again here for a fabulous episode 51, where we are continuing uh, our great conversation with Eric Cherney, who has been beyond awesome to come back with us. Thank you, man. You're welcome, man. I had a great time on the last one. I want to just keep doing this. I well, we we've got a one of these days we'll release the uh, the off air stuff that we did after the last one with the uh, <laughs> the gnarly nineties, the gnarly. 90s. I That'll think be a career ender for everybody here. We should just draw these cars up and see what the fans uh, who they pick. Let's just go ahead and build one. Yeah, there you go. Oh, okay, wait, wait. You're you're in the whole marketing thing, Carson. This is here's the deal, Eric. You and I will will have a draw off. Yes. That sounds so weird. But um, we'll present a couple concepts. Whoever, you know, We'll let the listeners choose these. Carson, it's your job to sell these bad boys. And we'll display them at SEMA. Duh. Uh, I think we're in. What if they, hey. what if, okay, we got to get everybody to vote to make this a tie, so we have to race them at SEMA. Don't challenge me. I'll put this thing together. <laughs> Carson's really good. We, we'll just rig it so it comes in at a tie. We'll get rid of a couple votes and just call it a tie. <laughs> Shuffling votes over. All right. I, I want the S10. You can have the Ranger. Oh, oh this is going to change. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm in. It's always good to choose first. You can. I guess that's good. I'll do a Ranger. <laughs> can I do a Bronco too? Oh, do a Dakota. You're a, you're a Dodge guy. Yeah, but that uh, that whole era of Dakota we don't talk about. Oh. But they had a Shelby Dakota. It's the D one. That's right. They had a Shelby Dakota. <laughs> you can do a Cyclone. Wait. Okay. Can I, I like a little the different? Cyclones. Can I do Those a Rampage? Cool. Anything. Even better. No, you need to do a Subaru Scat or Brat, whatever they were called. Oh, Brat would be awesome. The Brat. With the, whole, with the handles next to the molded the seats in the back. Brat. Yes, with Remember the those? back seats. Those are the yeah. <laughs> I, I so badly want to, I've got one in my head that I've got to get out. I want to do a really modern version of that with a whole carbon fiber inner tub for the bed. I have this stupid carbon idea. Carbon fiber anyway. more than the whole car. <laughs> <laughs> I have $7.93 into the truck. Yes, yeah. And $46,000. <laughs> one of those old Volkswagen unibody trucks. Remember those things? Yeah. Nice. Can be kind of fun. Hey, you guys do some drawings. I'll pull some stuff together. Who knows? Who knows where this could go? We'll all those unibody trucks are coming. Yeah. Have you guys seen all those concepts? All the unibody stuff. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's yeah. looking at bringing back sort of a, a mini truck meets El Camino, built on yeah. a Civic or Focus chassis. Yeah. Oh no, it's all kidding. coming. Huh? It is. This could be great. Hey, let's get yep. ahead of the curve. 
Well, our our trucks will come out first before they debut those, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, don't. Oh, don't. We'll be. Who will be ahead of the curve? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that I really want to do one of those uh, those little VW Utes. Remember those ones we saw in yeah. Scottsdale, Brad? Uh, oh, dude, that one Audi. Oh, yeah. Why don't we do one of? Oh, that, that was that little Audi one. Why don't we do one of those as a trophy truck? Cool. <laughs> a trophy <laughs> truck. On a on a two rag chassis. There you so... go. It's my, my my Audi bodied Touring chassis Audi body stadium truck. Oh. oh, like out of body Audi body. Oh. <laughs> nice out of body experience. Audi body experience. I can see oh, the title in Trucking Magazine. <laughs> oh, it just uh, writes itself. And it went way off target again. This is we're, we're well, maybe this is why point. you don't have creative dealing with management. <laughs> <laughs> Look at how this is. But one of the things we're going to talk about in this episode, uh, what was definitely the interaction between uh, the design studio, the designers, the creatives, and everything working with the management staff. And kind of how that all works out and how it can work when, especially when you have someone in management who is a designer by nature or trade. And you guys really had that. Yeah, I mean, Carson was talking a lot about that. I mean, in our early our early days, we worked with John Handy and he was always advocating for design. I mean, he was a strong design management guy. He came from a background of design, but he understood the business. And, you know, that allowed us to do a lot more. Um, Carson similarly did that for us. And, you know, for me, we talked about mentoring and stuff. I'm, I'm now starting to try to do that in, in the studios that I run and with the people that I work with, how do you inspire them to be the creative lead of the company? Right. And I think it's even more important in today's world because the companies that are winning are creative driven. Um, they have good ideas, right there. It's about the product. It's not just a brand anymore, right? All the big brands, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, these things are all getting hit because they don't even know what they stand for anymore. They stand for some, some old book somewhere has the recipe for Coca-Cola in it. And they're trying to say it's still valuable, but all the kids want to drink something else. Now they're all into kombucha or whatever organic something that they're into. Crystal Um, kombucha is going to be great. New kombucha. Anyway, I'm sorry. I ruined your train of thought. I'll shut up now. But but you haven't because I think what what happens is these guys, you know, it's it's about creating something, and the marketing people who are out there selling the same old thing or something that has no meaning to today's people, today's purchasers, no matter whether they're millennials or Gen Xers or Gen Y or whatnot, everybody now wants substance. And that comes from creativity, right? It's the companies that are winning are offering something unique and special, and it's a full-on experience. And that is all design. It isn't marketing. You know, marketing is marketing's bullshit in most cases. It's it's a tagline. It's a this. It's a that. But when it's all done well, it's tied together, and the product will stand for it. The product will market itself. The product will. The features will work. It will surprise people, delight people, solve whatever problem it was that they had, and they'll want to tell their friends about it, and it'll market itself. 
Um, and that really comes from your product development team and their ability to create something unique and special. Um, and I find that when you're in an organization where creativity is fostered, whether it's led by a business guy or an actual creative or anybody, if they're not fostering that creativity and really driving great product, they're not making anything. And today's consumer sees right through that immediately. Yeah. And the marketplace has changed. It seems like good design now is as much storytelling or creating an expectation or fulfilling the need that sometimes we know or don't know. And so, you know, good design really creates a compelling reason why you want that life. They say that, you know, you feel good about good design, but great design makes, makes, you know, you feel good about, you know, yourself and projecting it outward, what your, what your goals and values are. And then the retail market has changed. Um, you know, people aren't shopping like they used to at big stores that literally could be the filter of taste and the filter of design. So if Walmart's got a certain series of Hot Wheels cars on sale, you have no choice but to buy those. But if a smaller independent group comes on board, it doesn't go through Walmart. It does direct sales through, you know, Internet or web or whatever they may do to to present. They can go direct to consumers. And, and so for the first time, you kind of have an equalizer in the market where good design literally can lead the charge over someone who has an entrenched market and has been there for a while. And we see it happening all the time. I mean, look at the automotive lineups. You know, I always ask the question, how could Hyundai and Kia have such great cars in such a period of time? that was such a short development schedule that many of those cars are frankly better than some of our U.S. cars. The design is good. The resolution is good. You could talk horsepower and features and all that stuff, and I'd give you that argument. But to the point of quality, the marketplace has changed. And so people are more uh, cautious with their dollars. They're more discerning with what they buy. And then I think, too, more so than ever, purchases are more so an expression of the psychographic meaning who you aspire to be or who reflects who you are more so than ever before. And so this is why good management and good designers, you know, need to be, you know, even more closely linked in the process because they all own a piece of it. Yeah. And I, I'm with you. It's to me, it's so much about what you, your everything you purchase today is being filtered through the image you want to project. Yes. Um, it very much is. They define your purchases, define who you are mm -hmm. um, in so many different ways. Um, you buy especially big purchases, right? You buy a car today and it's like, well, what what image are you trying to right. project to others? Um, my daughter just bought a car and she I mean, it's so weird being a car guy, the car she chose everything about her car buying choices. I was like, this just flies in the face of everything I know about cars. It's so weird. <laughs> but it's your money. You do it. Right. Yep. I mean, she bought a, she bought a C max and for her, it was all about gas mileage and a flexible car and her phone linking to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being able to fit it in parking spots. She had driven a, a number of different vehicles before she had purchased this car in terms of cars that she had in high school and college. And she knew very quickly all the things she wanted in a car. And I'm like, you don't want like a Mustang or something cool. I mean, you're, you're 23 years old and you're fresh out of college. You don't want something awesome that all the guys are going to look at you in. She goes, Nope. You know, and somebody hit her on the freeway a couple of weeks back and 
so the car was in getting fixed and she had to drive a Ford Fusion and she's like, I hate this thing. And I'm like, but it's got all these other things. She goes, I hate it. It's so big and it gets shitty gas mileage and I don't want it. I want my car back. Yeah. Right? Wow. Okay. With like a pearl white silvery color. Like, and I'm like, I go, well, what else? She goes, but I wanted that color. Right. Like I wanted all those features and that color and she got what she wanted. Um, you know? And understanding those niches is really where design really has a more profound job and almost responsibility to respond to those. So they can't, in automotive, you can't look at the same thing as it needs to have four doors, a small V8, air conditioning, blah, 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 leather seats and, you know, and, and, and you know, floor mats. You know, it, it's completely different. In fact, kids of this generation are no longer defining their major purchases by cars as identifier. The car is secondary. The phone and the other accessories to their life are more the identifiers than cars are in our day. That projected image was your car, and I always found it funny, even though I do it on all my cars. But the first thing I do is put a set of wheels on there. Well, most of the time, I'm not looking at the wheels. Everybody driving the car is looking at the wheels. So I'm guilty. I'm protect, projecting an image. Yeah, and I think even with my daughter, the image she wanted to project yeah. in the car choice she made is somebody who cares about the world around yep. her, right? Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It's a hybrid, right? It gets. Mm-hmm. It's like for her, like she didn't want something that would offend her her friend's sensibilities, you know, she's like, this car will fit in. It's fine. You know, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, you know, for her, it wasn't about an outward expression of who she is, but yet it was in a different way. And to that point, that's where design management has to be able to filter what the designers come up as, you know, things that are, are, uh, counterintuitive to, to what the business segment is. So if you're general motors, somebody comes with an electric car you go we don't do those here well they were forced to do them and so that's where you know design and design management designers need to understand you know what are the common goals between the two and then what are the unique goals to each group you know business unit and you got to have somebody who really understands that's willing to take some risk and foster it and it's interesting you know having been in design management for a number of years I, i tell people the same thing it's not my job to do your job it's my job to remove all the obstacles that keep you from doing your job and then we'll find out if you can do it. The other thing goes the same thing with titles. They say that if you can do the job without the title, you've earned it. If you need the title to do the job, you'll never have the title. Yep. And it's it's different. We have a sense of immediacy in the, in the newer generation that kind of runs runs against that a bit. Everybody wants to be the superstar. They're, they're, they want it quickly because they were raised up in the age of you know instant everything from gratification to food to video games to everything. So we culturally sent them in this direction so we can't get mad that they're there but to the point it puts it puts a greater stress on that designer design management relationship to understand how do you meet the goals of the company and yet exceed them in areas that create value and differentiation so there's value in the purchase they can see there's money there and differentiation in the market where you're not like everybody else and that's really the goal of design Okay. Well, I'm my yeah. My brain's going. Okay. All right. Okay. This is this is good. <laughs> and it, it's 100 percent logic. Well, and, and Brian, we're talking about this today. He and I were talking on the phone earlier. And what's frustrating to me is where design is viewed as the necessary evil, part of the process that nobody wants to be involved in, part of the process that probably the CEO's wife or daughter, who's an art student, should be managing and choosing colors. And really, my argument is, and it's not just because I'm a designer, because about half my career has been in design. About maybe half of that, the other half, maybe 25% in design management and the rest in entrepreneurial and, 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 and innovation kind of things. But, you know, 
really when you when you look at what the goal of design is, you know, it, it's it's to meet the needs and exceed the needs. But it can't be done if it's viewed as a necessary evil, if it's viewed as an adjunct, or if it's viewed as it doesn't have immediate value, and it's limited and it's just design and it's qualified. And so, for them to understand it, it really is one of the most intellectual processes going. When you look at design, you're collating, you're categorizing, you're resolving, you're experimenting, you're blowing stuff up, you're trying new things, you're trying to speak to people emotionally and mechanically at the same time. It's got to have mechanical function. So it's really pretty damn complex. But when you think about it, it really is core and almost center to the process of complete product development from concept through engineering, manufacturing, distribution. It really needs to be the center. It should be the arbitrator and the mediator of the process. Even going back to what we first talked about, that that concept of that idea, you know, last week we were talking about like being able to sketch the idea right then and there. You can take all those different departments and all of their wants and needs mm-hmm. and create the product that actually best best um, you know meets those goals of all those different departments for the organization. And really, design is the center hub that can do that. Right. And, and not to give away our conversation that I had with Brian too much, but also within the scale of what the opportunities of design, let's just say a one through 10, very conservative on one, very extreme risk taking on a 10. If the designer is to present three solutions, I give it to the designer to scale that one through 10 on what aspect of scaling does he go? Does the company need to be more risk, more risk averse? You know, so that's where the designer is paid for his brain, not just his hand and wrist. And there are some places that's, that's highly regarded and it's fostered and it's supported. Oakley had a great design culture for a number of years. Mattel had one for a number of years. And then some companies just kind of do the same thing over and over, like Levi's. And you, you realize now why they lost their edge. You know, they kind of just, you know, look at Kodak when film changed. They didn't want to get on board and they put themselves out of business when it went to digital. They didn't understand it. Well, that's as much a design of the business as it is a product. I think a lot of, a lot of places too don't look at it as being the commodity that it is. They, they look at it more of, of a utility where yes. it's something that you walk over to the faucet, you turn it on, design comes out, you shut it off when you get what you wanted. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, and, and I it think never some of works that too that way. is all the different disciplines <clears throat> of design, right? So we have all different kinds of designers out in the world, fashion designers, graphic designers, you know, motion graphic designers, web designers. So that the term it becomes somewhat generic. And a mm-hmm. lot of companies are outsourcing design, right? So they try to come up with an idea. They use engineering, marketing. They come up with some sort of product they think is going to be good. And then they, they call on somebody to style it or somebody to come up with a logo for it or whatever, right? And I think one of the reasons Carson and I talk the way that we do is, I mean, I'm going to, it's going to sound terrible to some designers but as an industrial designer you're a creative problem solver and it it's a different discipline than the other forms of design in the sense that it is involved in the creation of the product and all the problems and solutions around the product and if you're involved in the initial inception of the product like an industrial designer will be a lot of times you'll create a logo to present that idea you'll create a lot of different pieces around the idea and those things can all be linked together. When you're brought in late, as any yeah. kind of designer can be brought in late, you're putting gingerbread on something. You're just mm-hmm. trying to make it look cool here or there. And even, Brian, when, when you start on a project as a custom car designer, 
you know, and you're, you, it's like, well, we want to win a Riddler award and we want to do it with a, I don't know, a, a 58, whatever. And then it's like, okay, well, give me some time to come up with a bunch of ideas and you come up with a theme and everything from the beginning. If, if they try to bring you in at the end of like, well, we got this thing and it's already in, it's already in bare metal. It's, it's, it's pretty much done. We just want you to kind of come in and do your thing. Well, you can't save it. You can't make it great from, if it's not already great. You know, you've got to be involved from the beginning. Um, and I think that's oh, yeah. why good design and companies that embrace good design and make design part of their co- corporate culture are the companies that are winning. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And it, it's tough to come in and take something over that's kind of like the village bicycle. You know, 50 other people have ridden this thing and you've got to come in and take these 50 different ideas and somehow make them look like one thing. Yeah. And I mean, oh, there's times it's impossible. Times said, how many times have we all seen or said, you know, you can hire me for this much money at the beginning of the project, you know, thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. <laughs> and they're like, but I can get this kid from high school for 200 bucks. OK, well, when you come see me after he wastes a month of your time, it's now going to be four thousand dollars for me to fix his crap. Well, why is it more money? It's half done. Well, because I got to fix a pile of junk. You bring me in at the beginning and let me do what I do. You can save some money. Um, you can actually have a better end output sooner because you're not wasting time. You know, you're going to pay that guy and then you're going to pay me to fix his problems. So Exactly. Or, or even worse. And this is something I kind of want to touch on, too. So you had mentioned last episode you know, one of your core strengths has always been being able to take someone's ideas and translate them into a sketch on the fly, which is one of the things we share in common. I love doing that. Um, do you run into a lot of guys, especially these days, who can't draw? Yes, very much. Very much. That scares and, the hell out of me. So. <laughs> and listen, and it baffles I mean, there's me. Different disciplines of design, but I do believe that. At the core, drawing is visual communication. So if you're a 3D guy, let's say you're building CAD or something like that, you may have a great vision, but your ability to execute that that vision quickly and put it in front of people for evaluation, it, it takes more time. It's You don't have the ability to do speed. Where I can draw a sketch and then ask you to build it to a certain specification because I know how CAD works. I've done CAD work. Uh, maybe I don't do whatever program you're working in, but I can draw all the surfaces, put the lines on the surfaces, tell you the dimensions and the shapes and, and guide what I am needing from you to create, you know? And I think that's where the drawing it becomes the roadmap, that very first sketch, even if it's just a napkin sketch. And it often is that particular piece of information is the, it's the beginning and it serves as the guide or roadmap for everyone else involved. Um, because usually it has the, you begin with the end in mind, right? So you've even probably on that napkin sketch have some idea of the graphics you're putting on that car or how you might two-tone it, or even the color, um, that information may be captured at that time, whether it's in the sketch or in your mind, that is when the inspiration happened. And so much of it was formulated. And if you can't sketch, you can't communicate that to all the other people who need to be involved in the process, whether it's a craftsman or a leather worker or 
whoever else it might be that's involved in the project, the elect, the guy who's going to come in and, and wire the car up and all the electronics and all the great features that you're going to design uh, and how you want to integrate technology or whatever it might be. All of those people need a roadmap. And that first sketch often serves as that. Yeah, it's interesting in most turnover packages that we did at Mattel and even in the medical field and other places I've been in the turnover packages like the concept drawing, the details, the spec, maybe a story, colors, marking, history, whatever. But you'd always have a control drawing and a control drawing is almost like an engineering blueprint. It shows the line drawing, it shows all views, it shows sections and it's not meant to stand alone. But it is meant to be supplemental to the overall concept drawing, a perspective, the illustration, the history and all that. But the control drawing, I'm a huge advocate of never having anybody but the designer do the control drawing because control drawing implies just that. If there's a design objective and a design initiative and a, a goal that you're trying to solve with with design, the designer needs to resolve that with the with the control drawing. And many times what I found is that if, if, you, if the designer gave that up to engineering and someone else did that, it became interpretive and he loses ability to control it to the best ability he can. I'm not saying he's the only guy who control it, but from, from a design perspective. And I, the big pushback I got a lot from designers was, I don't, know, I don't know technical drawing, I don't know drafting, I don't know CAD. And my argument to them has always been the same thing. Anything you don't understand in the design process that's part of the process is going to be used as a tool against you. They will use it as a weapon against you because the engineer would say, well, you can't mold this bumper because it's got a three-degree undercut. Well, what's an undercut? Well, that's when the part sticks in the mold. Well, never mind. I'll take care of it. When he takes Wait. care of it, he will take care of it from an engineering perspective. Cycle rates on the tool, mean time to failure on the tool, low mold wear, lack of slides, whatever it may be, articulated bases, mud unit dies, whatever technical term you want to use. Then you find already he's diminished your design to meet a criteria that may not be the best end result of the design, but may meet the needs of the factory. But this is where design has to be kind of more in charge of the process. And so that's why understanding that and doing the drawing is so important. And that's why being able to draw is so important. And yeah, I see a lot of designers right now that are kind of uh, CAD jockeys, Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator. They do great stuff. It's bubblegum for the eyes. When I ask for an engineering drawing, they can't produce one. So the chances are them getting the design the way they want is going to be hard. Well, okay. I got a question. I got, I got, I don't want to interrupt you here. I got a question, Carson, since we're talking about that is as, as, as a designer going to work at a place like that, wouldn't it be in your best interest to know what the capabilities of, of what you're designing before you start putting it together and realize you're over your head? Yes. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't and I'll that tell you, my first job in medical product design, I had a great mentor, Ron Stewart, who brought me in there as a designer. And six months later, I was running the design department. That was his plan. I didn't know it was it, but he gave me a great suggestion. He's a, and again, I talk about mentors and why they're important. He was a great mentor. He said, here's what I want you to do. Once a week, I want you out of the production floor. That's where they're taking all the drawings and all the engineering and all the blueprints and all stuff you guys do from the PC boards to the cages to all the fiberglass parts, everything, and they assemble it all. And they run into problems on a daily basis. I want you to be best friends with those guys. I want you to solve problems. So when engineering orders come from the floor back up, you're anticipating what they need. You get in cadence with them. And you start talking to them. And another guy in the group said, God, that's like putting the dogs and cats together. And he said, you've got to quit looking at this as an adversarial process. There's not an enemy in this process. There's collectively, we're all trying to get the same thing. I have used that advice in every environment I've ever been. From when I ran chip shop to at Mattel, wherever it was, I always made sure I understood what the guys on the factory floor were doing with the end designs we had and asked them, 
What could we do better? What was an issue? What came up for interpretation? What got violated because it didn't work? What worked well? It's the best advice a designer can get is understanding what the guys are doing with your end product at the very end. Well, so so I'll ask Eric that same question. So when you went to work with these different places, did you learn what your what your capabilities were or you know what your limits were when you were designing things? So it's funny what Carson just kind of ended up with. I made great friends with my engineer. I made great friends with my marketing person. In fact, one of the times I actually ran into John Handy because he wasn't always big fan of the marketing people. He had a bit more of an adversarial relationship with them. And he got upset with me because I was not fighting the marketing people. And my, my position is, and it's very much like what Carson is saying, if I'm doing the control art and I'm responsible for the visual look of this thing, I don't want to run into a marketing guy who's going to change the color on me down the road. I don't want to seed control. I want to keep that control. So if we have a capability in engineering and they say there's an undercut, okay, guys, well, show me where the undercut is. Even as a junior designer, I always approach it. Well, show me what's wrong. Okay, I'll revise the drawing in that area, right? Rather than allowing them to revise the drawing in the area, I would ask for, well, what, what can be done, what can't be done? And they would maybe tell me, and I would say, okay, well, what if we do this or what if we do that? And that's why it's a control drawing and not necessarily a final drawing. Right. The design can be updated. And I mean, how many times when you guys are building a car that, you know, you run into a problem, this hinge, this thing, whatever in the design didn't work. And now we need to revise it and change it in this area for whatever reason. And you do. And that's design on the fly. That's problem solving. Again, that's as an industrial designer, you're like, how do I do that and keep it within the theme? So it's like, you know, if everything's got a, uh, a uh, trapezoidal shape, then this too should have a trapezoidal shape, not a circular shape um, in order to keep the visual identity of the whole project looking good. Um, you know, I think that's why, again, the designer wants to be in control of that. That's why the word is a control drawing and not a final drawing or mm -hmm. an engineering drawing. It's like, it's about controlling whatever aspects of the, the project you can. Um, and, and the control is really in we're trying to create a cohesive end product that delivers a certain result. Um, sometimes in the types of cars that, you know, what might be a Riddler type of car or an Amber uh, award winning car, you're really pushing into art. So the the stuff you're doing may may be over the top. It doesn't really need to be done. I don't need to take that much time to work out the hinge, except that I really want to keep everything within a certain visual identity and so that everything you look at, I mean, we talked in the last episode about literally designing the fastener. If you're going to go that far to do this and you really might want to create something unique and that carries that same theme all the way through, it might be a trapezoid shape on the, the fastener. And it's like, we could use square heads. Nope. We went with a trapezoid guys. It should be a trapezoid. Yeah. One of the Riddler cars last year machined all their own hardware. You know, I mean, look, you're going to keep a theme. You're going to take it all the way. I guess you might as well. One of the important things that got brought up, too, was, you know, trying to make it collaborative versus combative. And because yeah. that, that's you get a lot of people where egos come to play. Yep. One guy wants us to be his project no matter what it is. And, and you, I think a lot of great ideas get left kind of on the floor or somewhere over in the garbage bin. And well, I mean, a, all the a... good people that I've seen and the people who last in industry, they are collaborative. And I think some of those designers who transition into management, 
the good ones, right? The big heads at the auto industries, the Chris Bangles and the other guys who, and the Jay Mazes, they look at everybody involved and they say, oh, we want to get all these people and all of their ideas accounted for. We want to try everything. And we want to, they might become sort of the curator of all that stuff and try to guide the team as they put various different people together. And the results can come out great, especially if you can get some really creative engineers who are willing to push boundaries. You can get some marketing people who you know, are willing to try something new and you can get the right group of people together. You can create something special and unique. And really that's the end goal, especially in the side of design that I work in, whether it's children's toys or entertainment or cars. It is, you know, Carson talks a lot about passion. People buy this stuff for no other reason than that they like it. Nobody goes to a movie because they have to. Yeah. I mean, unless you're on a date with your wife and it's her choice. Um, you know. <laughs> that, that, oh, so you saw Bridges of Madison County? Yeah, you saw ABBA, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, other than that, it's really, you know, what, what I've always, what I've dedicated my life to, to creating involves really satisfying people's wants. Um, and in some cases, you have to create the want. Yeah. Otherwise, the, they won't consume it at the rate that you hope for. Oh, yeah. You got to make people want what you're doing. That's, that, that's the whole point of having that whole the cool packaging, everything like that. And when, and when you're a really good designer, you're going to inspire all the people who are working on it to want to bring that idea to life. They're going to want to contribute their expertise and their knowledge and their ideas to it. And if you're open to their ideas, right, that's an interesting word. You know, if you're open to their ideas, it could improve the product. You know, again, it might have to get filtered back through the designer. Some, you know, some engineers like, well, I could do it like this. Well, let me take a look at how we can integrate that with the design. It's not going to bolt on or just slap on the side, right? Um, you want to integrate it. Well, that's how it's supposed to work usually. When you're always trying to push it forward, how can we keep moving forward to stay ahead of, of the curve? That's just the way it's supposed to be. There are some companies that will give you lip service to say, yeah, we always want to push it forward, take risks, do things. But then the opposite of that is when risks create failure. And many companies have high to tolerance for innovation and zero tolerance for failure. Well, failure is only failure if you don't repeat it and you don't do it on a major program and you don't, you know, make lofty goals and don't hit them by failure. And so I'm not a fan of failure, but I'm a big fan of learning from failure. I mean, I've said yeah. that, you know, people need to learn. Basically the analogy I've always made is like the way a kid learns to snow ski. When an adult snow skis, he falls down, he gets up quickly, brushes off the snow and looks around to see if he's watching because he's embarrassed. When a kid falls down, he laughs and goes, God, I guess I won't do that again. I fell down. He laughs and giggles and gets up and tries again. And so that whole accepting failure, you just got to learn from it. You got to, you got to embrace the fact that you are going to fail and you got to embrace the fact that if you're not pushing the limits, you're not going to crash. It's like Mario Andretti said when they asked him how he was such a good driver and how he drove, did he drive on the edge? And he said, Oh, I drive beyond the edge, but here's the deal. If you're not driving where you're scaring yourself, you're not a driver. I thought that's pretty good. Well, a saying I always liked, I always was just, it just always kind of meant something to me was a uh, success courts failure. Yes. And it's just, there you go. I mean, yes. that's, that says it perfectly. So yes. you're always trying to push the edge and, yes. and knowing you could fail, but you can't let that stop you. You still have to keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you often don't know where the line is until you cross it. That's, that's right. another, you know, yeah. analogy or metaphor that you use all the time. Right. Yeah. So 
I don't know that something isn't going to work until I break it. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, you, need it. you better break it. <laughs> you know, and so you have to constantly be pushing um, it. And I'm, I'm dealing with a project right now as I as I integrate in this new company. All the stuff we're trying to do, some of the some of the management, some of the leadership is, and the owners are like, "Well, how come this is always over cost? And how come this? And how come that?" And I'm like, "Look, guys, we got to look at the process, man." We've, we've done something as a company, you know, and I said, you guys did it before I got here. You guys accomplished something great. But now we have to we have to look at that and institutionalize that as the way this company is going to operate. And then we got to flip back around and we have to have the discipline to not make the mistakes we previously made. What did we do right all the way across? What's the cadence that we need to follow? And if we look at this, where did we where did we stress the the project too much? And where did things go wrong and how can we stretch that out and build a process that's repeatable and delivers results against a schedule on a regular basis? I said, you know, we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel every single time we start on a project, um, you know. And so it's as Carson said, in design management, I'm literally looking at the corporate process and the corporate culture and trying to design that yes. so that we have more success. Yep. Um, and the end result of that sometimes isn't necessarily a sketch. It could be a PowerPoint and I'll start literally sketching out the PowerPoint. Literally I've had marketing people and people come by, what are you doing? Why are you drawing? Are you supposed to work on this? I go, I'm literally thinking about how the presentation is going to come together on how I want to communicate this information in a way that people can digest it and actually make, um, recommendations and, changes based on it so you know what the order of how i want to set up a particular uh argument and all the bullet points all that stuff what what's most important and least important i mean i'm designing the information um you know to sell it in a way that i think is going to land with the people who are going to receive this it's funny i've used the same to that point i've used the same basic design methodology that i learned at long beach um in, in multiple aspects of designing an experiment for medical products, designing an experience I want to have with a product or a vacation, designing a set of goals and parameters for a project, writing a proposal, fulfilling a proposal. I've used that same methodology, that discovery process and that resolution and that justifying and then the end result creating value differentiation. I've used that continuously through my life for things that aren't, you could say, aren't even design driven, like simple things like taking a vacation or going out to dinner or seeing somebody or doing something or experience or writing a proposal. There's design of those two that you, you have to have the end goal in mind, but you have to create value and create differentiation. And if you can do that, you're going to succeed. If you do the same thing everybody else does, well, you're back in the pack with all those guys doing the same things they do, and your success is going to be based on what the pack does and not what the individual does. And, and it's interesting you say that because I will literally zig when everyone else zags. I yeah. cannot stand going the direction the rest of the crowd is going in because you can't stand out if you're doing what everybody right. else does. So, Brian, this kind of keys into the discussion we had today, right? Oh. Where, where if they put up a form of resistance, and we talked about the resistance thing in the last episode too with the water ski analogy and all that stuff, but like when they're going one way, maybe that's the time to take the power and go the other way and use that momentum and, and have a different clarity in a different direction. Yeah, and I'm, I'm the same way. And this, you know, Eric's a smart guy. He's built a great career. You know, it's cool to see where he has laid certain aspects of methodology and process overlapping his life and design 
and has got these successes. And it, it's, it's, it's great to see that it works, you know, and it's proof that it does work. Indeed. If you could apply all that to, uh, like, a book on parenting, you'd have it made. You'd have a bestseller. Oh, I yeah, wish it was I, that I, easy. I'll, I'll I'll I've, I've used some methodologies in, in, in parenting. And, you know, much as I told my employees, hey, it's not my job. It's my job to remove all the things to keep you from doing your job. I've said the same thing to my kids in a different format by saying it's my first time being a dad. It's your first time being a kid. You didn't come with instructions. We can sit down and collaboratively, collaboratively figure this out and work together. Or you can argue with me, and I'll tell you to shut up, and you're going to do what I tell you. So, so you know, take a pick. You know, it's like, well, you know. Well, and, and the only reason I kind of mentioned that weird kind of metaphor was it, it sometimes feels that way when you're trying to push in one direction and you're being pushed against. And yes. it's almost like arguing with a child. It's so weird. And it, oh, yeah. it's hard sometimes not to be the child in that argument. <laughs> that's an yeah. easy line to trip over. Yes, well, and I think I think designers fall in that hole oftentimes, right? You know, they're they're passionate and they don't know why they like stuff. I know I've had several conversations with Carson and he talks about his method. It's not unlike the scientific method. And I think the difference between, again, we talk about an industrial designer and other kinds of designers. And I know Carson and I both come from that side of things, but I have a bachelor's in science of design. And a lot of the science side of design is the process by which you go. Yes. So you're doing a science fair project like seventh grade. There's a scientific method to proving out the results. And you start with the end in mind. You have a hypothesis. Right. Right. I believe this will happen. And it's no wrong answer. You may go down and spend months of research to find out your hypothesis isn't true. But you go in and you look at the results about why your hypothesis wasn't true or there's some surprise result you didn't expect. And then now you have some other thing that you can do with it. Right. That's how we got the blue pill. Like it was literally a different. Kind of drug. <laughs> yep. They didn't realize it was doing this to dudes. They had a whole billion yep. dollar project. Um, yep. You know, that's the scientific <laughs> method. You just and it's funny. It. Yeah. And, and, and it's true because, yeah, we, we have my degrees, bachelor of science also. But what's funny for me is because my early education was biochem. I was going to be a doctor in biomed. I learned all that linearity of science and math. And those are absolutes. But then within creating hypothesis, you get to use the absolutes to try to prove the unprovable. And so it created this great challenge. So I'm kind of like that right brain, left brain, but it allowed me to kind of work in a fashion that I could take certain aspects as discovery and opportunity, and certain aspects as given and kind of balance the two. But I also said in the medical field that if I would have presented and designed, or I don't want to say designed it, but presented designs to the medical community as a designer or an artist, I would have failed. Well, so how I many times? How many I times? I from a business sense or a science thing, and then I could find I had more latitude to get things done because they didn't see it coming. Well, well, Carson, I want to jump in here too because I want you to talk about this. How many times have you and I talked about the students that you teach, where you will talk about how they're not allowed to use the word "I want" or, yes, or when I they're like. presenting something? This yes. is the reason why, right? Yeah, so exactly. I want in the exactly. medical field. I want to do this. Well, means nothing. Means nothing. It's well, yeah, about it's numbers and results. Yeah. Because so much of design can be subjective and personal. And don't get me wrong. I love the subjectivity if it can be qualified. I love the personal because passion comes from that personal involvement. But when you go to justify, just like you were saying, Eric, it's almost like creating a, a, a good closing argument in a law case or creating an experiment. You've got to be factual. You've got to build a story linear. You've got to come to a conclusion. The conclusion is either the, the person's innocent 
or this product has value and here's why and value or differentiation. So you're creating a story in these people and you're using design aspects and opportunity and discovery to create the aspects of benefit to them by growing a market, getting into a new market, making profit, making improvements, whatever it may be. Design's a business tool. It's not an art tool. It can be artistic, but its first goal is business. And so when students, and I warn them, when they start presentations and we ask why they did things, well, I like this. I'm like, eh, the trap door just fell. You just lost your interview. It's like you can't justify because you like or you felt. You've got to do research. And so I teach that medical product design class along with a couple other classes in Long Beach State. And the nice thing about the medical product design class is I force them into a very linear discovery phase that opens up to a multifaceted research. But the goals of, of creating an experiment are pretty linear. You know, you're testing against a control group or creating an experiment, then creating a control group against that to develop hypothesis, better, worse, you know, up, down, right, left, where it may be. And so when they go off on subjective stuff, I don't think that builds careers. I don't think that, you know, back to our, again, I'll take another one. Brian, we talked about again today about 31 flavors of ice cream. It was Carson's <laughs> right and on. one flavor of ice cream. Have an opportunity to do different things in the same environment creates opportunity for everybody to have their own personal involvement, but it's got to be a business-based. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting you bring all that up. And, and bringing us back to some of the car conversation that we were having, I had a great conversation a couple of it was a couple of weeks ago with somebody who was talking about um, you know California. They're talking about maybe rolling that uh, rolling that 1974 cutoff back a little bit, right? Yeah. But they're not rolling it back to the place where it's going to matter. And I had this whole conversation of like you know in other parts of the country, some guy might build a fox body Mustang, a really great fox body Mustang. A bet a better analogy is an F body Camaro. Um, mm -hmm. They're like, well, you know, this is going to be really popular. And I go, why? Well, because I really like these cars. And I'm like, yeah. it will never be popular. And he goes, why? I go, because custom car culture originates on the West Coast and I can't build an F-body Camaro. And he's like, but what do you mean? I go, F-body Camaros are like 83, 84, 85. Right. The I, right. I go, I can't put the engine and the technology. I yep. can't start from the cool look of that car. And I'm not denying that that car might not look cool. And that there's probably not a lot of people out there who would like to see those cars modified. Mm -hmm. I said, but until California rolls back and allows us to build those cars, it's going to be hard for the rest of the country to make those cars worthwhile to build. Yeah. I said, you know, plus most of them are living in our deserts and in our junkyards all the way through <laughs> Arizona. So, right. so you got to go get one from Cleveland to bring it up there. And it's shitty steel that's going to rust up there. Yeah. You've yeah. got to get, I said. I said, yeah, you can build a 79 and 81 Fox body Mustang and you can do a lot of stuff with it if they roll the date back to, you know, what some of what they're talking about. Um, but for the most part, there's a whole bunch of cars like we're joking about those mini trucks. Really, the reason the mini trucks probably will never happen is because you really can't build them the way you would want. Yeah. It's not worth yeah. building that awesome Audi body experience truck we were talking about because, <laughs> you know, if I could take that, I mean, maybe you could because you'd just license it as a as a Touareg because the chassis is. But for the most part, all those great things you can do with all those previous generation cars and why they're continuously redone and done over and done again is because they fall within a gray area that allows people to be expressive with them. Um, and there's science behind that. There really is design reasoning um, behind it. Uh, as Carson said, maybe it's just like a legal argument in this case, but. You know, there's so much about when you're trying to project to predict a trend or uh, build a business that design can relate to. 
um, and help with. And it's just about like literally looking at stuff from with clear eyes and using maybe the scientific process or a design methodology to kind of get to that rather than I just want to build it because I liked it because I used to drive it. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's art and it's cool, you know, and you can do that. And I know dudes here in SoCal, like our friend uh, Tony uh, Maciel, he's building all kinds of cool mini truck stuff. Mm-hmm. But every one of his trucks, you can't drive because he yeah. can't get them licensed. Yeah. He's just building cool stuff because he likes it. And yeah. it's all trailer queens. Right. Uh, and that know. meets his needs, but it doesn't turn it into a business. So, you know, there's some there's some interesting stuff that's happening out there. But I think that's part of one of the reasons why I honestly feel like some of the we're kind of stuck in a certain uh, era when it comes to automotive, you know, sort of aftermarket design, because you can only get away with doing so much to new cars. And as they age, the stuff that you really want to do in terms of adding performance or changing out the motor and all those different kinds of things, um, you really can't get away with under a lot of state regulations anymore. So those cars become pretty worthless um, and then they never actually regain value because as long as they're still in this area where the state's like, well, you can't, we don't want you to do anything to these vehicles. Uh, you're, you know, you're stuck. Yeah. And then when you look at how regulations change these new carb uh, rules on exhaust and exhaust modification, there's, there's companies that are basically going out of business if that goes away, we think it's going to go. And so, yeah, you're right. There's going to be certain certain years of cars are just not going to be attracted because of the economics of business. Yeah. And because you can't get a license or insured. Now, yeah. it's funny, counter to this whole argument is in Brazil, they have a 60% import tariff on anything automotive that comes outside of Brazil to them. They also, after a car is 14 years old, you cannot insure it and you cannot register it. So you have to get special registration like a parade vehicle and you have to create a bond. Uh, having a bond, like, you know, be bonded to have to drive that car and showing you're like self-insured. And that market is stronger than it's ever been. We go down there and it's, we went down there the other time and there's a Yanko Camaro down there, 100 point Yanko Camaro. We're like, holy moly, how does this happen? And yet, so there are people who will find a way around it, but you can't make a business model out of that. You may be able to do it as a one-off, as a passionate collector, but you're not going to create a replica business or a support business or a design business based around that. Yeah, there's so many things I can say about the car culture in California and like that. They're they're going to stop things, but still want to know why they're you know why there's no tax revenue coming in. Well, hey, look, you're chasing it off. Stop it. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, don't even start me on that one. Yeah. And to your point, I've long believed that you know, like I I hate the way that they tax cars in California. You go out and buy a new car, and you pay the most tax on a new car. And one of my big things is we've got a traffic problem. We've got smog problem. New cars are better for the environment than old cars. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and specifically, old, old cars don't get driven. So things that are 1985 and older, not even 1995 and older, you don't see much of that on the road. So those should just be collector cars. And people who are interested in building a car from that era are probably have the money to pay a little bit more in taxes to keep those things on the road. And what a lot of those really run as clean or cleaner than new cars too. And the new, you know, so you've got the you've got the brand new cars that are cleaner than their their outgoing generation, and then you've got the old cars that are simply just not being driven. Yeah. They're never going to be driven in the same volume that the new cars yeah. are being driven yeah. in. It's really the cars in the middle you're trying to weed out, and you're really 
trying to weed out the junky cars in the middle, right? Because the cars that you were passionate about, whether it's your F body Camaros or your Mustangs, you talk about that whole era and maybe there's a couple of eclipses in there and there's some other stuff that might've shown up in that era of whatever performance looked like that people would be interested in reviving. Like you're never going to go see like a, a custom uh, Chevy SSR. Like nobody's going to revive that thing and do anything yeah. with it. Or, you know, maybe somebody will like, you know, try to restore a cyclone because it's cool, but nobody's ever going to take a cyclone and like shoehorn a brand new LS into it and do something amazing with it. All wheel drive, whatever, just in insanity because there's no reason they, they're never going to be able to get it licensed to drive. And I'd almost rather see California focus on getting people into newer vehicles that are safer and drive better and are better for the environment and get people out of these, you know, weird boxes that are just decaying and then get that. And then the cars that survive the people, the ones that people are passionate about, they're surviving because people are passionate about them. They'll get parted out and turned into the last remaining, uh, you know, sort of good looking models of those cars. Um, and then people will take care of them. I mean, you know, people don't get into a 1995 Chevy Impala and drive it to work every day unless they were Carson, (laughs) (laughs) but they, but they really don't do that. They don't get into that car. At least now they wouldn't, they'd be like, if I had a good model of that car, I wouldn't drive it every day. Um, and even if they did, it would be in pristine shape. Right. Um, you know. So I'm I'm a big fan of like I'd love to see them open those cars up a little bit more. And have you run for office? Well, yeah. <laughs> Plus, I have this really sneaky thing that I believe that those people stuck in the middle who are hanging onto those low to ins- uh, low to insure, low to um, register, crummy cars that are still sort of drivable, like a 2005, whatever, you know, Taurus or citation. something. Yeah, whatever that whatever was you hey. know going on back then that car really shouldn't be on the road and the guy driving it probably doesn't even have insurance anyway um you know and you know i'd rather see those people like in a in a state like new york or a city like new york more people don't even drive um and the cars that they do have they take care of because they only drive them on weekends and whatnot so you know if you want to if you want to clean up the traffic problem you want to get people you want to make driving something that is more of a privilege than everybody feels like it's their right to do um, you know, and people would, you know, literally do that. If they wanted to drive an old car, they'd pay for the privilege to drive the old car. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to, if they want to drive, they would buy newer technology that was better for the environment and better for the roads. And some of these cars that will actually start to drive themselves and traffic will clean up and get rid of the junk in the middle. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we sure got sidetracked from marketing and artwork and, <laughs> Well, it's, it's that yeah, design, great, right? Though. You can't sit down and not think about it. I spend way too much time driving, so I think about like things like that, and I'm like, there's a design solution for this. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah, go. That's that's a hell of a solution, too. I mean, that's at least some good groundwork. Yeah. yeah you, they'll never, you're... No one would ever pass it because the people who in the middle who like those, who are buying those cars would never vote for it, right? Right. So they won't vote for it. So the people who represent them, it's 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 got its flaws. Even if it's a good idea, it probably would never happen in this state. That's the problem. One of them. Well, you know, one of many. I mean, I'm really really <laughs> oversimplifying that. <laughs> but 
Uh, well, this is this is kind of a cool thing, though. Yeah, we got sidetracked, but again, it shows kind of the fluidity of design. It's not all just drawing pretty pictures or making a product. Yeah. This is Solving like designing problems. a solution to a problem. Solving problems, creating opportunities. It's, it's absolutely, at least that's where I've always come from. It's always about problem solving. Definitely. That's, that's where my brain lives. Like as a kid, I could never just look at something and go, oh, I just got to leave that alone. Yeah, I was one of those tinkering kids who broke way more stuff in my parents' house than I ever should have. But well, I end, for me, I end up, as you said, you can't leave well enough alone and, and well enough isn't perfect. So you're constantly trying to improve it. And then you end up, you know, one of the things I've learned later in life is not to interject myself into things that I don't want to be involved in because <laughs> I'm going to have passion and I'm going to get involved in it. And that means somebody's going to be like, it's your project now. Yeah. Either that or you're going to walk away and no matter what your intentions are, you're the a-hole. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's 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 our blessing and our curse. Sometimes it's a blessing to be the a hole. <laughs> you know, some of us wear it well. I I tend to relish it. <laughs> I quit fighting it. <laughs> Try to perfect it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm to be the best at it. <laughs> I um, I'm gonna extend this. What the hell? I'm gonna say this right now, man. Kind of like we do with Carson. And I know you said you were open to it before, but man, I want to have you back on on kind of a regular basis, but I won't commandeer your whole night like this. <laughs> Sounds good, man. I promise you. I want to let you go enjoy some kind of time with your family. Um, but man, let, let's pick this back up because I'd love to go deep into your career, especially getting into things like Paw Patrol and things like that. Stuff that you had that was such a hit and kind of dissect what your mindset was going into that and working through that project and everything. That'd be awesome, man. That'd be really fun stuff to talk about. I would love to. I'll, his... I'll put some date stamps on that and say that uh, Eric and I worked together at Hot Wheels. I think I mentioned this before. He uh, worked at Jada. He then worked at JL Full Throttle doing the Foose cars where he worked with Chip. Uh, he also did some consulting design work for me when I was doing some stuff for NBC for Fast and Furious. So we've had multiple times to work with each other, for each other, consult back and forth. Um, and there's a reason I keep calling him to come back. He's, he's, he's a talent, but he also gets it on multiple levels, as you can tell from the conversation. So, yeah, it's fun. And, and I forget to say something. Is 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 Eric, you and I actually tag-teamed on a car. So, oh, yeah? Uh, oh, yeah, Sean Carlson's uh, little oh, yeah. Ford Focus deal. Yeah, I, 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 did, I did some of the lettering on it, and then I airbrushed the front end on it. I did the grill and the headlights and all that. The, all yeah, that, that thing was McGuire awesome, sponsored Focus, which became a Hot Wheels car, yeah. Yeah, I mean, God bless uh, uh, Sean. Sean. He was such yeah. an awesome dude. Yeah, yep. very talented guy. And and I bet you you did some of that stuff because he came out of the trucking world and into the sport compact world as all that stuff moved. He was a fabricator yep. and a creator. Well, yeah, I did that. I did that. Uh, I worked with a guy named Dick Vale for years, a custom painter, and he did a lot yeah. of stuff for Sean. And that's then that's how I ended up working on that car was was yeah. done at Dick's place. Yeah, I mean, he's such such a great guy. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I miss him all the time because he was such a real innovator and, and a creative guy and looking to push that envelope all the time. Yep. So, you know. Yeah, and what he did back then, he really set the groundwork for where that groundwork for that all went. I mean, he really was an early adopter in that and, you know, very successful, but really saw it as an opportunity to do things something, do things differently, you know? 
he was good at the business side of that stuff too. I mean, yeah. he really he really revolutionized the sport compact as as a real racing series and mm -hmm. helping get people get sponsors and yeah. building out those cars. I mean, he built uh, Steph's car, the yeah. you know the yep. eight second Honda, right? I did I did work on that car too. Yeah, I mean, Optopolis. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and and then to see him cross over. I mean, one of the coolest things for me, like I have a I have a uh, Dodge probably a stratus srt pro street when he crossed over and actually drove uh drove pro street at the end of the season for somebody that's right Carson, you, you probably remember who he actually drove yeah for. i'm not sure if he drove for jegs it might have been jegs um, yeah he did drive he drove uh, yeah he drove what for was it alderman or all oh, i don't oh. i'm not as yes anyway, daryl alderman or something alderman. Like that? Yeah. yeah yeah that's pro stock yeah seat. well he was a pro stock yeah he was driving he was yeah stock yep they, they pulled him over because he was on Dodge's sport compact team. And then they needed somebody to sit in that seat because I think Daryl got hurt or something was up. Right. And or wasn't he was in Jeffrey, Scott Jeffreyon's car? Maybe. Some, yeah, he's in one of those cars. It might, yeah. have, been all, it might have been a team where I, I yeah. want to say the Alderman name was in there. Yeah. And he sat in somebody else's seat because there was some reason they needed a driver. Yeah. And, you know, they wanted to see if he could cross over and, you know. Yeah. I, I'm I mean, thinking it was. I'm thinking it was after the Alderman deal. It was. Oh, uh, right. It was. It was. Yeah. Uh, he was driving for a Schumacher. Schumacher had yeah. a couple of pro stalkers out there, and they put him in there to try it out. And he yeah. really couldn't. He really couldn't ever get. I I knew some of the pro stock guys out there, and he struggled. He really. He was really good it's at the front now. wheel drive stuff and the rear wheel drive thing. He really could never get a handle on it. Well, the truth was, he was probably as, as an innovator and the kind of guy he was. He was probably better at building the team and building the cars and the marketing and all of the other stuff. Right. Um, and when he got into Sport Compact, I think he was he was a face of Sport Compact, right? He was a face. Oh in yes. World. And I think they wanted him to drive, but he was better at building cars for Steph to drive, right? We talk about a driver who's willing to push a car to the edge. You know, while, while Sean could push a car to the edge, he also had to go fix his own car. So I think, you know, that that sometimes stops you from pushing your car as far as you could go because you're like, shit, I got to fix that if I break it. You know what I mean? Well, and he knew how to surround himself with very talented guys. He had a pretty talented couple of guys down there working for him. And Yeah, yeah. I just looked it up real quick. He did drive for Don Schumacher back in 2006. He drove their uh, Team Mopar SRT Dodge in the Pro yep. Stock Series. Wow. And that was for, for Don Schumacher. And he had just come out of the front wheel drive series after that. And with this pro stock debate in 2004. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he and Steph are some of the prototypes used for fast and furious. There's yes. articles about those two dudes yes. who used to actually do a lot of street racing out in Ontario. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. He they was an Alta Loma kid. He, uh, my cousins all live in Alta Loma and went to Alta Loma high school and they knew him from high school. Yep. I mean, those were the guys that were doing that kind of stuff and, and lived at that, that, that hot import nights world that they turned yep. into a crazy yep. movie. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. He was a good guy. Really good guy. Wow. Well, I'd say this, this could keep going. This is, this has been oh, some good. amazing <laughs> conversations here. It's like, Holy crap. Wow. <laughs> Doing this again. If you guys want to, we can, we can hit some different topics and throw some stuff back and forth and figure out how to, I how to, keep these things a little bit more focused and uh oh i'm game I'm, yeah i'm absolutely oh, this game was, this was great yeah and i apologize for that. i really wanted to take your episode and i wanted to touch on the key points but i wanted to leave it as organic as possible and yeah, uh, yeah we kind of 
it's the problem when you put a couple designers in the same room and <laughs> well, well Carson, Ooh, who would have seen Carson, this coming uh, Nancy and Jerry our wives they just experienced this because Carson and I hadn't seen each other a person for probably a couple years and then we went yeah. to Vegas for that show and uh we could sit we, we could sit there at that table and pretty much talk for yeah you know, yeah <laughs> forever we'd probably just die talking they, they kind of had to say, okay, look, you know, the sun's coming up, uh, people are leaving, <laughs> they're turning chairs upside down, that's kind of a cue. <laughs> they're like, you guys aren't even drinking, you're not making us any money in any way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. So, yeah so I, I'm sure Carson's game, I'm game, let's, I'm game. Uh, let's put some dates down and yeah. do it. Yeah, awesome, yeah. awesome. Awesome, thank you. Yes, thank you very much, Eric. And Carson, thank you very yes, much for coming yes, on. Great. Thanks, Eric. This was fun. Yep. A little trip down memory road, and we saved the bad stories for another day. So, <laughs> And an absolute pleasure to have you two on the same episode together. Uh, you know, two, two guys who I, I admire beyond words right here. Thank you guys both. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure, Anytime. too. And yeah, we'll, we'll we'll hook up offline here, and we'll uh, we'll make sure we get this all squared away. Sounds cool. good. Sounds good. You guys are awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank Again. you, guys. Okay, go. You got a you got a twofer. <sighs> it's nuts, man. I all the whole time I was sitting here just thinking how jealous I was of these guys who got to work together at a place like that. Yeah, and, me too. Yeah, me too. How much Shit. fun it would have been. Because it could, you, know, you couldn't help but bring your A game. I mean, you'd be right. looking forward. It's like shit. I need yeah. to do better. You'd be, yeah. you'd have, you'd have some serious talent coming out of that place. Right. That you couldn't lose. Everybody's motivating each other. You know, nobody wants to be the weak link. That's shit. That's the environment you want to be in. Yeah, that's crazy. That's just it. It's nonstop, like creativity pushing each other. You're inspiring someone. I, yeah, I don't have that at all. So. No. Well, holy crap. Okay, that's we're, we're two episodes with Eric in. <laughs> we, we could probably do five more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> and man, I'm having such a good time because, uh, Brad, great idea to bring in, you know, the two of the guys, having them been friends for years and have worked together and had the mentor relationship too. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. cool. It's a huge dynamic. Um, for everything that he went over as full as my brain is the thing I can't get over was when they were describing working at Mattel, especially Hot Wheels in the design side in my head, I'm picturing just being there. And all of a sudden yeah. I was overcome with the sadness of what a waste my career has been. <laughs> <laughs> I kept trying to compare it to where I currently work, you know, and I'm like, you know, gosh, man, if we could just utilize some of these ideas that they had and it's, I had a little bit of tinge of jealousy, you know, because I'd love to experience something like that. And there was a lot of jealousy because that's like, that's yeah. the equivalent of like working at a place like Pixar. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. that? Yeah, we want to we want to put in a conference room. Oh, cool. We're going to do is an old style gas station. and You know, when he was explaining the design center and everybody's cubicles and all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, we've all got cubicles too where I work at. We've all got them all customized, but nothing to that level. And I know exactly what he's talking about because I've walked into some engineering areas where, you know, they got pieces and parts laying on their desk and things like that. And I can imagine when you got a bunch of artists and really creative people out there and some of the things that they do. 
I mean, you could probably have a tour where you walk through the engineering offices just to look at what they got, and it would be worth it. Yeah. How cool. I mean, we have... I can't say uh, for for our forthcoming Patreon uh, campaign, you'll be able to hear one of the outtakes from these two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a child, you know, a hot rodder in the '90s, oh, it is right up your wheelhouse. It's gold. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't incite you to be a part of this. Yeah, but, so, yeah. don't know what does. Uh... And and uh, I'm not gonna drag this on too much longer. Let's just say we'll have Eric back. Right. Uh, we know that uh, from your emails, comments, and things like that, that Carson is definitely a fan favorite. So look for having him on, you know, a whole lot more. We're gonna work on getting him a little bit better of a microphone too. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Happy birthday, Carson. <laughs> you know what you're already gonna get. Happy birthday. <laughs> Do some work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's a, he, he needs a microphone. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get that all covered, and that that would help too if you become a you know a patron of ours over on our Patreon account that we'll be announcing very soon. Anyway, uh, huge thanks though to to Eric Journey for joining us, and like I said, we'll have him back on because there's so much we haven't explored quite yet in his career. Let's just say it's it's a lot. A little timeline yeah. that Carson gave yeah. here kind of scratches at the surface of what that guy has accomplished and done. Yeah, he even made a comment. He goes, you know, we haven't really talked about much of what I've done outside of Hot Wheels. And then Carson laid it all out. We could have Eric on for many more episodes. That's, you know. And I think it'd be great when we won't stop learning. And I mean, really think about it. We stopped at his career at like 2005. Yeah. 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 We literally went from 96 to 05. Mm-hmm. We have 05 through present data. <laughs> That's the part that I think if your socks aren't completely blown off, these are going to knock them into the neighbor's house. Yeah. I, uh, I, I can't say thanks enough, though, uh, to both, both Carson and Eric for coming on. It was great to have two friends like that to just kind of sit around and not only talk, but really build on each other's conversation. And as, as always, to you guys for being a part of this thing. Mm. Thanks, yeah. Alex and Brad. Aw. Wow. Yeah, th- th- this this particular episode, I found myself just absorbing it all. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we're the guys that have to ask the questions. You know, we've got to, we're, we're the guys that are supposed to keep this thing moving. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't want it to stop. You know, it's, yeah, just listening in on these guys, I felt like I should. We should all got college credit for what we just listened to. <laughs> we should. Uh, I, you can't walk out of a conversation with Carson without feeling smarter. That's right. Oh yeah, absolutely. That is indeed true. Any time I talk to that man, and now having Eric on here, it was like I, I feel twice as smart. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let's be honest with you. This is probably cubed somewhere. Okay, so like probably. Who knows? <laughs> 24 times smarter. Wow. And you guys know me outside of the show, so that's, that's, wow. it's a hell of a jump. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon I'll be ordering off the big people menu. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, though. Um, but thank, thank you, our valued listeners, for for tuning again. And we'll have tuning in again. How about that? We'll uh, we'll be having these guys back on, and we have a whole lot more coming. But uh, once again, man, hey, uh, fifty-one episodes in the pile. <sighs> Doesn't feel like one over two hundred and ninety. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here's to uh, the next 51 or so. And uh, mm. thank you guys for listening as always. Indeed. Yep. And uh, look for more good stuff over on uh, round6pod.com. And uh, hey, at the end of this one, I am a, a tremendously well-designed Brian. Oh, I'm a, uh, I, I got a four-piece mold. I'm uh, I'm four-piece Brad. Wow. And we'll I'm... go with that. And I'm still Alex. I, I, I can't. I, I can't top those. Undercut, Alex. Ah, yes. I like that. That'd have been, that'd have been great, Alex, with his <laughs> undercut to balance out the overbite. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> All right. All right, gentlemen. Thanks again, Thanks, sir. We'll All catch right. y'all guys next time. Yep. Hey. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on youtube.com.